So I have written this book, um, and um, I don't know if anybody's. Well, I know one person's in some one person in the room has read it because they've just come up and said so. Two people have read it. <laughs> We're doing well, um, and it's available from all good booksellers. Um, and uh, one of the reasons for writing about it was that nobody had done this. Nobody had from the inside tried to describe what that extraordinary 20-year period was when, when print started to decline and other forms of media took over. And I just thought it was quite important for somebody from the inside to say, well, this is what it felt like. Uh, and, uh, and then I wanted to sort of try and explore some of the avenues that we went down uh, and try and think where I, I, I left the Guardian three years ago um, and, and tried to, in tranquility as it were, recollect what happened and then and try and work out what I thought about what, what we had done and, and where the world's going. So that was, that was the purpose for writing the book. And funnily enough, when I started writing it, publishers were a bit sort of surprised that anybody would want to do this. Um, and by the time I finished it, um, uh, suddenly everybody wanted to talk about it, so it, it, it was sort of quite lucky in, it, in its timing. Um, and I suppose the, the, the printing press is at the sort of heart of the, the, the story, and uh, if you were a journalist of a certain age, um, that was, you had one of those, and it was lovely. Um, and the chief point was that other people didn't have one, um, and you had one, they, not many people had them, and, and usually they were owned by rich people or corporations, and all kinds of things followed from the fact that you had a printing press. Um, uh, one of it was that uh, you had a sort of more or less monopoly for 250 years in, in, in reaching people and giving them information, and not just news. So if advertisers wanted to reach an audience, they had to come via you. Um, it obviously affected the medium in which you communicated. You communicated in, in words, on, on paper. I, I, this is terribly basic stuff, I know, but, it, but, but, it, but, but uh, bear with me. Uh, it, 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 it dictated how often you communicated, generally once a day or one edition or multiple editions of one paper. But generally, you had all day to think about what you were writing and then you pronounced. Um, uh, it, it affected the whole economics, apart from the advertising bit, because you had a physical product in, in, to, to sell. But I think what most journalists, so I think most journalists don't really think about that. They just, they, they, they live in a world in which they had the printing press and they don't really think that that was a sort of rather extraordinary thing for you to own and rather, it placed you in a rather extraordinary position in society. And there's no doubt that if you were a journalist and you had a printing press before the internet, you felt slightly superior. You were, you were on a platform above other people and you almost literally handed down your newspaper to somebody who would then almost literally hand up their money to you. And you were uh, the arbiter of what they read. You were, you were the gatekeeper of knowledge. And people began to assume, people I think confused this, this notion of being the gatekeeper with a kind of authority and expertise. Um, and almost everything about that world of owning a printing press was sort of blown up during the time that, that I was editing. Uh, and 
this gigantic revolution happened, which was as big as the last revolution, which involved a printing press. Um, uh, and it, it was just a, an enormous thing that is rippling today and will ripple for the decades or centuries to come. And we, we can't really see clearly the meaning of this. And so one of the themes of the book was, given that you've no idea where you're going, what judgments can you make? And how clearly can you step back and, and, and get any space at all to try and understand where the world is going? And I think the answer is, it's still a very confusing picture. We don't know. And all kinds of people speak very authoritatively about, uh, about where they think it's going. Uh, and the truth is, we don't know. Um, and that's quite a good starting point. Somebody reviewing my book said, counted, I don't know how he counted, but... Five, five thank you very much, 551 question marks, um, implying that the book was, you know, uh, ask, ask more questions than it answered. Certainly does. Um, uh, and it would be, I think, uh, I can't imagine who could write a book that could answer these questions. You, it's, it's impossible to do at the moment. That, incidentally, um, provokes big questions of how on earth you lead an organization when you can't do that in a traditional way. You can't stand up in front of 600 people and say, follow me, everything's going to be all right. Um, because you're going to change your mind every few weeks if you're any good. Uh, and so you have to find a way of talking with your colleagues that has a huge amount of uncertainty built into it. And that's terribly difficult because working with people who feel insecure and it is a really hard thing to manage anyway. Uh, and so I think you have, to, you have to develop an entire new way of having these conversations. And, and any one time in The Guardian, out of staff of 600 journalists, we had 100 people who thought I was absolutely crazy and mad uh, and that um, moving away from print was, was, a, was an act of madness and that digital was, was, a, was a swamp of, of, of inanity. Uh, and you had 100 people who thought the exact opposite, who, who just thought, well, why don't you just shut down the printing press now um, because it's so obvious where the world is going. And you had about 400 people in the middle um, who, who could go either way. Um, uh, and part of the book is about that too. It's, it's, it's about how you lead or, or, or create any organization. I, I drew a map um, to try and, a, a map of my particular revolution. Uh, and it looks a bit like that. Um, this is not printed in the book because it's a terrible map. But um, down the bottom, there were the, the stories that we were writing. Um, up at the top were the things that were sort of reorganizational things about presses and about where we worked and about what we were buying, what we were selling. This, the, the dark green was our, our attempt, beginning with our first real website in uh, right about, well, we, we, the first website was right, right about here in 1996, 1997. We, we, we launched Guardian Unlimited, which was our first attempt at doing a proper website right about there. That had various reiterations right up to Guardian apps and Facebook apps uh, over, uh, along that green line. But then you, you interlay that on the light blue line uh, and all these extraordinary things. If you just look at that little cluster in about 2006, so the British newspaper industry was having a gigantic discussion about whether it should be tabloid or broadsheet or, or, or Berliner, which seemed the most important issue that anybody could imagine. Uh, and while we had our head in those hands, something called Facebook launched. 
and something called Twitter, and the iPhone was in, in, in invented. Um, uh, and again, you, you look back and you think, did we, did we quite grasp what was going on? Did anybody grasp what was going on? And a part of the book is the discussions that I would regularly have with a woman called Emily Bell, who now runs the Tao Center at, at, at Columbia University and who was my sort of digital brains. And, um, and I, I started calling them Emily's mad pronouncements and she took me to task the other day on some podcast where she thought this was a bit gendered. But nevertheless, the, the point was they were sort of mad in the sense of Albert Einstein mad. She would come in and say things like, um, Twitter was going to be the biggest news organization on the planet. And you thought, what are you talking about, Emily? And Twitter's where people are talking about what they have for breakfast. And of course, she was right. And then when, the, when Web 2.0 was started round right about then, she said, this is a much bigger revolution than Web 1.0. This is going to be an incredible disruptor of news. Um, and again, understanding what she meant by that. And of course, she was completely right. And then Facebook didn't seem to have anything to do with news but Facebook and Craigslist between them were the things that, that, that absolutely dismembered the economic model of news. So it's, it's quite interesting to sort of look back on a series of decisions and, and wonder if you were running a paper today, and looking at the people at the, the table here or a news organization, what is it that you are missing that is happening on the other side of the world right now that you can't see is going to absolutely transform what you do but you just can't understand it at the moment and who's who's going to tell you and who's who's your Emily Bell uh, and how do you have a conversation about technology um, if you are not technologists um, and and where do the technologists live in a newspaper and how do you bridge the gulf between uh, you know the, the 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 600 journalists who can't see what this what what any of this has got to do with journalism uh, and how can you persuade them that these things that, that may mean nothing to them uh, are going to have a, a vast attempt, uh, effect on their lives. And by the way, you're still printing a newspaper. Um, I hear a, a gasp of, um, of recognition. So, uh, and the, so you have this, you know, there are things that really shouldn't matter to the reader and yet really preoccupy journalists. One of them is the question of do you integrate the, the online and the the offline bits of your business. If, if, you, if you don't integrate them, you're going to have two or three teams doing, doing, uh, working in competition uh, within the same building. If you do integrate them, the likelihood is, unless you're really on the case all the time, that the print people will just subsume the digital people. It's, you know, they're, they're older, they're better paid, they're, they've got higher status. Um, and, and anyway, that sort of sense of fear of all this new stuff will always mean that the print people will squash the digital people. Um, so th I don't know what the answer to that is, but, but we tried it both ways. And But the bigger picture, it seemed to me, was a one in which this world that had been arranged vertically was now rearranging itself horizontally. That, that's the web 2.0 point. Um, and uh, it's, that's a very, very hard thing for journalists to get their head around and, and, and understand what that means. But we can see it, it's not just happening to journalism, it's happening to all kinds of institutions and organizations and callings and views of expertise and what authority constitutes. 
And you've now got a world in which four billion people can now talk to themselves on a horizontal plane. And journalists are wondering, well, where, where do we fit in? And why don't they respect us? And why don't they trust us? And why don't they listen to us anymore? Uh, and, and something enormous has happened to society. And journalism is flailing around saying, well, can't we just go back to the time when we had the printing press and these guys didn't? Because that, that was lovely. Uh, the, the historian Nell Ferguson has just written about this and, and the, the analogy he uses between the tower and the square. Um, uh, and again, it's an attempt to, to say, uh, to, to, to chart a, a seismic shift in, in society in, in which the discussion in the square is, is supplanting the discussion in the tower. And we can all think of how this is playing out in politics in, in all different parts of the world. So, so something massive and seismic is happening, which is not just about news, but news is trying to find its place in this new ecosystem. Um, and that's what the new ecosystem looks like. And uh, it would have been a very easy book to write, I think, to say, we hate them. Um, uh, they, are, they are displanting what we do. They are untrustworthy. Um, John Mayer's there, and he's just written a, published a book called Anti-Social Media, which um, I haven't read because he gave it to me two minutes ago, but um, it's got a very good chapter by me in it. Um, uh, uh, so it would have been an easy book to do. These, these are all horrible, and can, can we please go back to the time when we were standing on the stool? Um, and you get people like Paul Dacre, who edits, edited the Daily Mail, and that's what he thinks of Facebook. He thinks it's a deeply tarnished, filth-peddling, tax-dodging, pusillanimous, terror-abetting internet behemoth sinking lower in the mire, full of hatred, targeting the vulnerable with bile. Um, and there are, if you read the British press, if you read the German press, I mean, there are quite a lot of people who, who, who just want you to believe that. Um, and, of course, it's partly true. It's not, I'm not saying it's not true. It's partly true. Um, the problem with that is that that's what's happened to Facebook's growth um, over 10 years, and uh, which is in sharp contrast to what's happening to newspapers. So somehow you have to explain why this thing that is so loathsome and, and, and revolting and disgusting seems to be tremendously popular, uh, and, and the thing that we do, news, seems to be that, I mean, that's just printed um, papers, but, but, but that's not doing, that's not a great chart. Um, so that would have been the easy book to write, and the, the, I suppose the book that I began to want to write was also a book that said, well, actually, newspapers are the solution. You know, I've been a journalist for 40 years. Um, we just present a journalism as the answer to information chaos, and people will eventually get the point and say, this, this is something that we, we trust. And the problem with, with writing that book was that it was happening while this story was going on. Um, uh, and I, I knew, I, so I was no longer involved in this, but I knew as a reader what I wanted. I wanted, uh, this seemed to be a very complicated question. I think the penny has dropped that this is a very complicated question. And I wanted complexity, and I wanted, I wanted both sides of the argument to be explained to me so that I could reach a judgment on uh, what I thought we, uh, this, I mean, the biggest decision Britain's faced in uh, two or three generations. And that's actually what most papers gave us. Uh, it, they, 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 they gave you one side of the argument, 
uh, and they, they, they didn't give you the other side of the argument, and they were uh, almost, they were, they were uh, remorseless in, 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 in peddling one side. They were almost propagandists for one side of the argument, and there's very good work that's been done by David Levy here uh, about the, 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 the two-to-one majority in the British press uh, putting the lead message as opposed to the remain message. So you thought, well, it's quite difficult to write a book saying newspapers are the answer when actually I, the, the, I, the, I just can't make that argument. And then you've got you know, a number of examples where this man on the left publishing what was the, the biggest selling newspaper in Britain was actually writing checks for a million pounds to the man who was leading the, uh, yeah, so, so this was not a newspaper, as we understand it. This was a man whose chief claim to life was that he published a magazine called Asian Babes, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, uh, so he's really a, a pornographer. He doesn't like to be called a pornographer, but he's a pornographer, uh, writing checks to Nigel Farage and then using his newspaper as a vehicle to influence people because he happens to own a printing press. And I think people get this. They think, who is he to tell me how to vote? Who's Rupert Murdoch to tell me how to, how to vote? Uh, Rupert Murdoch doesn't even live here. He doesn't, he doesn't pay his taxes here. He's not a British citizen. And yet he believes that he can use his megaphone and his printing press in order to tell us what we should um, behave. And there, there was another paper that was actually forced to register as, as part of the campaign because it had printed a poster for people to put up in their, their windows. So it was saying, basically saying, well, we know what you should be doing. We're not going to bother to inform you about the two sides in this. In fact, we're going to print propaganda for one side of the, the, uh, uh, of the argument. Uh, and then you've got front pages like this in which um, people who were part of the the British institutions that we were supposedly defending were now suddenly the enemies of the people and stories that, let's call them fake news. Um, uh, we had no idea if that, that, that story is true or not, but the, but the Sun was unable to show that it was true and it, it got criticised for publishing that. So we've got a sort of strange mixture in the press of uh, fake news, uh, of bullying. That was a really... Another one of the many disheartening moments during that came when, when this was around the time that a, a Labour MP was murdered in the middle of the, the campaign by a man shouting nationalist slogans. Uh, and yet there were these, these attempts really to um, uh, bully people and say, ignore the will of the people at your peril, the paper owned by the, the pornographer um, who's written a cheque to Nigel Farage for a, a million pounds. So you, you see the problem in trying to write the book that says um, journalism is the answer. I mean, I could go on showing you front pages um, till the cows come home of the, the kind of language that was uh, the great betrayal, Great Britain or the great betrayal. These MPs who, you know, we're supposed to be returning sovereignty to the British Parliament, and when people vote with their conscience, they are abused on the front pages of the... Um, uh, of the uh, papers. That, that, that headline, another human rights fiasco, turned out just not to be true. That was an untrue story. And if you were on Twitter, 
there, were, there was a barrister who had exposed that as an untrue story even before the printing press started up. Uh, but it took them months to, uh, to, to, to do a proper uh, apology. So this, 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 as if this is journalism, it's quite hard, I thought, to pitch that against Facebook and all the people we're supposed to hate and say this is the answer. So that, Brexit was one problem. The, the other problem I had was climate change. Again, um, you would think that as journalists uh, we accept the verdict of most people, most scientists who know what they're talking about, and say this is, this is one of the greatest threats to the species. I think most people, does anybody disagree with that in this room? Um, so you, you, would, you would think um, that as, as, as journalists, that would be the biggest story that we can imagine. Can, can anybody think of a bigger story? That's the biggest story there is at the moment for our generation, and yet uh, in, if you live in, in Britain, you almost never see this on the front page. And if you do it, see it on the, in, in newspapers or magazines, it's quite often written about as though this um, is not a problem or that it's actually being made up. So it's, it's, we, can, we can ignore it, we can be skeptical about it, or we can be outright hostile to it. Uh, and there's a man called James Dellingpole, who um, I'm not sure if anybody's in the name mean anything to anybody. Um, so he is the climate change correspondent of Breitbart. Um, uh, and um, he is a, a, um, a graduate of this fine university. He was at Christchurch and graduated with a degree in English. So he's not a scientist. Nevertheless, that's what he believes. He, uh, he believes man-made warning is evidently de demonstrably not a problem. And people who pretend otherwise are crooks, liars, idiots, or shills, blah, 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 blah. Uh, copious evidence to support all these statements. Uh, this is a revolution. We've got truth and justice on our side. We owe the enemy nothing. They shouldn't they should we, we don't count our job done until we've crushed them, seen them driven before us, and heard the lamentations of their women. So that's, this is where James Dellingpole's coming from. I think he's very clear. Um, and you can see he's got a certain sort of Woodhousean, Boris Johnson style of writing. So he's a sort of e easy read. And he writes for Breitbart, which is quite alarming because we know the president reads Breitbart and is quite influenced by what they write. But nevertheless, remember, we're journalists and we're better than that. All that information chaos, all those nutters out there writing stuff. So you wouldn't expect to see James Dellingpole write in a proper newspaper, would you? Because, because we deal with the truth. The trouble is if you put his name into a search engine, you find James Dellingpole all over the place. So he's writing for The Express, he's writing for Murdoch, The Sun, he's writing for The Spectator, he's writing for The Telegraph, he's writing for all Murdoch's outputs in, uh, in Australia. Uh, and he, De Dellingpole is the go-to man on climate change. And you think, well, this, what on earth is, is happening? How, how can, how can a, a calling, a profession, a craft, whatever journalism is, how can we... How can we defend that if that's what we're doing? Um, and again, so, so I, I, I thought this is not an easy story to write in which you just say journalism is the answer. Um, and people are not stupid, and you know the, the, the measures on, on trust, and we know that if you live in the UK, um, trust is now really um, uh, appalling. I mean, okay, you can read that 
remarkably in China, the trust in, in newspapers is terrific, but um, that's a different kind of trust, I think. But uh, there, there's the UK trust. Um, half, half people are now disengaged with news altogether. So they're saying, actually, I, 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 I just can't be bothered with it. 63% now doesn't know how to tell good journalism from rumor or falsehood. They've, they've lost the ability to tell anymore. Uh, and um, you, you're in a really sort of dangerous position, I think, in, in which uh, I thought I had more slides. I, I could show you another 10 slides on what's happened to trust and the, the fact that people are now disengaging from news and they can't tell what's, the, what, what's good news and what's the bad news. So then the book really gets into these three words. Um, um, the, the public interest. So, so is what we're doing in journalism serving a kind of, of, of public service and in the public interest? If so, are, are we going to have to go out and explain that to people all over again? So a lot of people very disengaged in news very skeptical about that old way of doing things, which was really nice to us, you know, as I say, when, when I was on the stool, I really liked it. But you can see how or why people might think, actually, this doesn't, if that's what journalism is, uh, I'm not sure I buy into it. And so we have to, what is it that we can say about journalism that would rally people? And I think one of the problems is that, that journalism is such a sort of big, baggy, loose term to, to describe what the Sun does, but also what the FT does, what Fox News does, but also what the New York Times does, or what Breitbart does, but also what the Guardian does. We just call it journalism. And yet there are, there are again, one of my terrible graphics, I tried to write down all the different kinds of journalism. We just call that news, but in fact there are, there are a, a million different types of, of news. So again, the, the words that we use, the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, we had a little discussion the other day and said, well, no, it was actually in a CPJ board meeting, the Committee to Protect Journalists. Who were who the journalists that were committed to protect? Um, what, what is journalism? Uh, and th this, of course, is bound up with the economic model. So if one of the reasons that people don't write about climate change is because you've got metrics in your newsroom that tells you that people don't want to read about climate change. Um, and some people now have metrics in their newsrooms that say, well, we're only going to write about things that drive subscriptions. I heard an editor say that at Reuters in the last few months. So you can see how, if that's the way you run a newsroom, because actually you're thinking of the economic model first, then you might say, well, that, if people don't want to write about climate change, we won't write about climate change. Um, that might be good for business. It's really terrible for democracy because if, if people are not educated about the need for <coughs> political action on climate change, then it makes the job of the politician almost impossible. So you can have something that is good for business and journalism, and it depends... But, but terrible for democracy, and actually terrible for journalism. So you have to sort of decide, well, what is the starting point of the conversation? And I suppose I was, one of the great strokes of luck was to end up at The Guardian, where you can have that kind of, you know, we have no shareholders, we have no Rupert Murdoch, um, and you can say, well, let's try and get the journalism right first. 
alongside our attempt to build a business model. And you can see in lots of companies, they do it the other way around. They say, well, we, we've got to hit this figure, or we've got to hit that figure, or this growth, uh, and we'll think about the journalism later. I just don't think it works. You have to, you have to start with the journalism um, and work out what you're doing in, in the public interest. Um, there, there's a company that had very long-term thinking at Amazon. Um, th that was its growth in sales. Barely made a profit. Just a little, tiny little uptick recently. And that, that, that's, the, that's the premise on which all new media businesses work. They had to go for the reach, and then the revenue will f follow. Um, and it's al almost impossible... I'm making huge generalizations, and you can say, oh, but look, the Financial Times has done it, or the Wall Street Journal, or the... Or the but generally, most newspapers are having, going for this strategy because you need many, many more people in order to, to sell advertising to because the, 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 the rates of advertising, are, the, the, the actual CPM, the cost of advertising has dropped. So that was one thing that we, we wanted to do on The Guardian. And it's, again, in the writing of the book, um, it's almost impossible to compare the FT's model. FT's model is very dependent on a magazine on how to spend it. Uh, which has advertising and editorial, sometimes difficult to tell which is which. Um, and there is a watch costing £23,440, which is the average salary of a Guardian reader for a year. So they're, 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 they're very different kinds of readers, and one is selling financial information, one is selling general information. Um, so the, the, the other thing is, you know, these are the 531 questions. You can't say, oh, there's obviously a model for, for journalism in, in which um, uh, we can now um, uh, uh, say that well, we, we've now sorted the economic model. Lots of people would like to pretend that they have, but, but they haven't. And the other bit of the conversation which comes in, and uh, once you stop trying to think, when you try to think beyond the printing press, is your relationship with the audience is obviously different, isn't it? You're, you're not just throwing copies over a wall at people. Uh, you're in a world in which they can talk to you. And if you don't want to talk to them, they'll talk to each other. And this led to theories of journalism, uh, which that was 2006, Dan Gilmore, uh, in which he came up with this proposition that my readers know more than I do. And uh, again, a lot of journalists, even now, don't really want to think about that. And, and there's, a, there's a kind of sort of backlash already happening in which journalists say, oh, we tried that, we had comments under our articles, turned out our readers were morons, uh, and we don't want to hear from them, um, and so we're just going to switch the comments off, you know. That was, that was moonshine from 2006, but we've, we've learned better than that now. And that's another really important decision that you have to take in newsrooms today. Are, are, you, are you having a conversation with readers, which is what the, what the horizontal world is about, a world in which people talk to each other and have a, have a, have a dialogue, which will affect the tone of voice in which you, you, you write or the, 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 the kind of material that you use or the evidence that you supply, or are you back in the world of the printing press where you think, well, actually, we tried that, that didn't work, we're just going to talk at them? Big, big question. Um, so um, I now want to talk in the sort of last... Uh, last sort of quarter of where I am, what I want to talk about, and then please see where the conversation goes. Um, I think 
when I was editing The Guardian, there were sort of various things that we tried that would, we, you know, we tried to be the most digital, and I think we were quite good at that. We, we tried to stumble around thinking of words that would do justice to that, that proposition. So were we doing something that was mutual? Was that a word that would describe our attempt to have a different kind of relationship with the, with the readers? Or, and then we tried the word open. Um, and I see that James Harding, who's just set up a new website called The Tortoise, is talking about open journalism. So it's sort of the, the Dutch paper, The Correspondent, is, is, is doing something called open journalism. So there are, there are some attempts to try and do something in this way. So, so those were two strands of what we were doing. And the third strand was just doing great journalism. Um, uh, and in the public interest. Um, uh, against people who deserved to be written about or held to account, and most of them really hit back very hard, which led me to think about the value of a news organisation as an institution, that, because there's no point in publishing journalism if you can't defend it, because we can see all over the world patterns where, where rich and powerful entities and political entities and corporations and individuals are now crushing journalism because journalism hasn't got the money to defend itself. Um, so here are just some examples. There was this man who was called Matthias Rath, who was selling nonsense pills in South Africa and sub-Saharan Africa to people saying that it would cure them of AIDS, HIV. Um, and he was killing people. Um, and we wrote about that and described him as somebody who was killing people through his actions. Uh, and he sued us for a very large sum of money, and it cost us, in the end, we were about half a million pounds out of, out of, out of profit, uh, out of pocket in, in having to defend that. Uh, that handsome chap there is a man called Duncan Campbell, who in real life... Um, uh, lives with Julie Christie, the, the film actor, uh, because he's so handsome. Um, and he was our crime correspondent, and he did a story about some corrupt police men. Uh, they sued, took three years, four years to get into court, uh, and uh, it happened that we won. Uh, that man, clever picture of that, because it looks as though he's in prison, doesn't it? it he, <laughs> He did go to prison, but that was not a picture of him in prison. So he was the editor of the News of the World. And uh, rather unwisely, David Cameron, the Prime Minister, took him into 10 Downing Street to be the Prime Minister's press secretary, even though he knew that uh, he was a bad person who'd done bad things. Uh, and that took us seven years to do that story. Um, and that story is still going on. I've written seven years there, not because that's how long he got, but that's because how long it took us uh, to, <laughs> to do that story. Um, uh, and um, if you're interested in that story, it's still in the courts, and Rebecca Brooks is still back running the newspaper, and they're still trying to buy off people so that they don't have to uh, disclose things about what was going on at The Sun as well as the News of the World. Uh, this man also went to prison. Uh, uh, that's Jonathan Aitken, who was a cabinet minister. Um, and um, I think that headline tells you what he did. Um, 
and that's why he went to prison. Um, long story, but um, uh, but it was a um, uh, again that was about three years of quite nerve-biting stuff and a lot of money to to, to nail that. Uh, there's another Conservative MP. Um, I think that gives you a flavour of what he was doing. Um, he was being paid brown envelopes of cash by Mohammed Al-Fayed to ask questions in Parliament. Um, uh, he didn't go to prison. Um, this was Barclays Bank, um, who we uh, were writing about all kinds of things about their finances and their... their um, their tax affairs and so on and so forth. And I put a picture of a sleeping judge there because there was actually a moment where they rang up a judge in the middle of the night to try and stop us from writing something. Um, big, powerful person to take on. You, you don't take on Barclays Bank unless you're really sure of what you're doing. Nor do you take on these people. That's the MI6 building, that's the, um, the, that's the NSA, that must be the Pentagon and that's MI5. And she's a pretty scary woman to take on. You don't want to take on Judy Dench. Um, uh, but we, we did all the WikiLeaks and the Edward Snowden stories. You were up against the power of the state, the, the most powerful states, who would uh, try and destroy your reporting if they possibly could. That was about four years' work. Um, another scary guy to take on. Um, as I said, that was seven years' work. Uh, at one point, we did an investigation into the tax affairs of all those companies. And there was an interesting moment where I had to go to the advertising director and say, I think I should tell you that we're going to take on all these people. And he went a bit white and he said, but they're all our biggest advertisers. And I said, <laughs> I said it's worse than that, because actually the biggest tax dodger of all is Martin Sorrell at WPP, who arranges the advertising on behalf of all these people, and we're going to expose him too. Uh, and he said, oh, fair enough, um, because that's the way that we ran The Guardian. It wasn't like the way that The Telegraph was run, chapter 14 in the book, in which the commercial department had essentially taken over the editorial department uh, and was running the newspaper. Uh, this was a, a, a terrible story about police crossing a particular line, which this, these were people... These were police officers, male police officers, who went undercover into environmental organizations and other protest groups in order to sleep with the environmentalists and form relations with them and sometimes have babies with them. Uh, and then when they were pulled out, they just disappeared from these women's lives and they never knew why that man who'd come into their lives disappeared. A appalling story that's now a major government inquiry into the use of undercover police. Uh, and that was another story that we took. Um, we did a lot on torture and rendition. That was the foreign secretary at the time. He really went for us and told us that we were lying. And I was called in by Judy Dench um, more than once uh, and told that our reporter was a disgraceful human being and that we shouldn't do it. Years later, like in the last six months, turned out it was all true. Um, Trafigura, nasty big company, took out not just an injunction against us for talking about toxic waste dumping off the coast of Africa. They took out a super injunction, which is something which you can't even write about the injunction because the injunction is covered by another injunction. 
um, and we outwitted them, and that was very expensive too. Uh, the Qatar World Cup's glaives, print that, that was 10 years of, of uh, trying to get the Prince Charles to reveal his, his, um, his, his lobbying of, of Parliament. Uh, there were journalists expelled, dragged, kidnapped, locked up. So you had the sort of safety of journalists to do. You had to deal with um, complicated people like that um, and uh, defend those kinds of stories. Uh, Saudi Arabia's in the news at the moment. David Lee on The Guardian worked for 17 years on a story that showed uh, a pattern of corrupt payments from the British to the Saudi Arabians. And that became such a terrible story for the Brits that the, the Attorney General had to step in and stop the prosecution of the company. Uh, this man, Ian Tomlinson, at the G20 riots, this was a piece of open reporting Police said he'd had a heart attack in the middle of the riot. Uh, our reporter didn't believe it and didn't appeal to Guardian readers and said, has anybody got any video of this? Uh, and a, a hedge fund manager in New York who'd been there found that he'd captured the moment where this guy didn't have a heart attack. He was actually beaten from behind by a policeman and that was the thing that killed him. Uh, that's my hard drive after the British government had finished dealing with it. Um, uh, that was Judy Dench herself came into the office and, um, and dealt with uh, my computer. So th th I suppose what I'm describing is a, is a pattern of stories which built up a picture of what the Guardian newspaper was. Uh, and people thought, I think that's what journalism should be. Um, now, of course, in any conventional company, that person, who's not Judy Dench, but is the chief financial officer, would say that this is madness. You know, I mean, seven years, 17 years, three years to be working on one story? Um, how can you possibly justify this? So on, in a lot of news organizations, that's the first thing they stop. They say, let's stop all that investigative nonsense. We can't, we can't possibly justify that because we have to build a financial model that's going to work. Um, uh, and so um, you, have to, you have to have resilience and understanding about what you're doing within an organization so you're all pointed in the same direction. You can't necessarily guarantee that your friends in the press are going to be on your side. The Daily Mail, thank you Daily Mail, spent a lot of time uh, trying to persuade the police to come and arrest me. Uh, all in all, it would be much easier to do that. Um, that would be a much simpler life. You would probably get more hits. Uh, and um, the, the chief financial officer would be really pleased with you. But then you come back to this nagging question of the public interest. What, what public interest is it that we're trying to serve? And how can we say that journalism is the thing that we exist to do if um, you can't do it? And I think, actually, if you look at any film about journalism, which are usually, let's face it, quite boring films because they involve a lot of of white blokes sitting in a middle-aged way at, at, at typewriters, um, and there's not much drama about them. But nevertheless, I think that's people buy into this as, as they do think, actually, that is what we want journalists to do, and that's what we think journalism is, is about. And it took time, and lots of people doubted that this was going to work. But the theory was, what we're going to do is to do what Amazon did. We will be, build the reach. Uh, and we built something that had been selling 
about 400,000 copies in Britain, the eighth biggest paper in Britain, uh, and suddenly now there's 160 million people in the world read The Guardian. Uh, and just as print was going like that, online was going like that, we couldn't prove, I couldn't stand up in front of the 600 journalists and say, look, this is all going to be fine in the end, it's all going to work. Uh, we were essentially doing the same thing as a number of other organisations that were thinking the same way. And today, The Guardian has got a model in which all those people pay, so it's about 800,000 people paying, not because they have to, but because they recognize in The Guardian that here's a, a form of information that the world needs in the public interest. And they're not buying it so that they can just read it themselves and the person next door can't read it. They're saying, actually, this is a form of philanthropy, if you like, uh, the same as a lot of those. Wikipedia is a form of philanthropy, and NPR is a form of Public, there is a public interest in good information being widely available. So here we have now 800,000 people and a paper that says it is going to break even this year. Um, and it, by the way, has a, a billion quid that we built up. Um, and I love it when people say, but you bankrupted the Guardian. You say, no, no, it's still got a billion pounds in the bank because we haven't bankrupted the Guardian because we always knew that we were going to do this in a sustainable way and it's going to break even. So I, that sort of leads me, finally, to sort of think about, well, if, if the public interest is what guides you, uh, and if the economic model for a lot of news is not going to work, then do we have to think about companies in a different way? Do we think about them as social enterprises that begin by stating what the public interest is that they want to serve, uh, and, and then retrofit the economic model? Um, and I, I, that's a, a sort of big question that I think is sort of left hanging in the air. And literally one and a half minutes, and then please pile in with your questions. Um, but the, the interesting thing about doing all this kind of journalism was you had a sort of warm glow because you thought, actually, we are serving a kind of public interest. The sums are coming in because readers agree and, and they are prepared to support that kind of journalism. Um, and then you have these sort of high-wire moments when, when, when uh, this clash between the, the, the principles of journalism in the public interest come into collision with the state. And you're hauled into Parliament and you're asked, well, if you, if you want to write about what's known, is that compatible with loving your country? Um, and I thought that's another picture of what happens to a computer when Judy Dench comes in and, uh, and smashes it up. Uh, and then exciting things happen, like uh, you get played by Doctor Who in the, uh, in the Fifth Estate, and then uh, Oliver Stone rings you up and says, would you like to star in my movie too? And there's me playing uh, myself, and then you have these surreal moments when you have dinner with this man, um, because he's bought the rights to the phone hacking story, and you think, well, I'm very flattered that he thinks he could play me, um, but if he lost a few pounds and got into, went to the gym a bit, he could probably... <laughs> Pass himself off as me, and, uh, and then you suddenly are on the steps of Columbia University and you have the public service prize, the, the Pulitzer Prize in, in public service, public service, which is just a sort of wonderful thing to think actually this has been recognised that what you were doing was a kind, a kind of public service. And the final, final thing was the most surreal thing when one day in the post somebody sent me an LP 
called Alan Rusbridger. Um, uh, by, I'm sure everybody is familiar with the leading Darmstadt German protest band, um, <laughs> Rue Riots, and I'll play you out with Rue Riots. It's not going to work. Anyway, you get the point. They're, they're singing about Alan Rusbridger. <laughs> what? Yeah, quite. Um, anyway, there you are. Um, let's let's have some discussion. Thank you so much.